0: Welcome to Lynn Cullen Live. Talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com And now your host, Lynn Cullen.
1: I'm not hearing anything. Hello, hello, am I on? Yeah, I didn't hear the intro. Well, that was a Hello, I'm back. It always happens if you've been gone. Somebody messes with the equipment and things aren't quite right. Hi. Uh, it's good to be back, I think. Um, and uh, it was my intention in my absence to, uh, you know, get myself in a, in a better place and I, I was, I think, mostly successful. And I do, thanks. There, I hear the dulcet sounds of my own voice. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I, I have a feeling that, um, you know, as happened last time when I took a month off. <laughs> It won't last, this whatever, this calmer place I have found. And, and I'm, I hate to sound like a proselytizer, but I'm, I'm probably going to a bit. I really think it's exceedingly important that we all take care of ourselves in these uh, trying times uh we're good for nothing uh, for fighting back for resisting for act you know action whatever if we are exhausted or crazed with anger you know when when you're angry when you're stressed, none of the systems in your body are working right, none of them. You don't make good decisions. Uh, you're incapable of uh, of, of thoughtfulness, and, and that's because if you're stressed, I mean, you know, the the sort of more primitive parts of your brain take over. It's the fight flight this that you're just trying to stay alive, and then the parts of your brain that are distinctly human. Uh, capable of uh, reason and thought, uh, they get shoved to the side and I think what happens to a lot of us in um, in these times is is exactly that we become not our best selves, uh, not our most capable selves and uh, given the fact that I think, by and large, we're a rather serious bunch. That doesn't mean we don't love to laugh. But, I mean, we take being a citizen seriously. We pay attention. Uh, We read. We care. Uh, I really think we got to remember that the number one thing we have to do is care for ourselves because if we're no good, then we can't do any good. That's all. And that's sort of what I came to again realize um when I went away to try to get my bearings again. Uh I was reminded of a number of things. Uh I, I, I went to a place <laughs> that uh is a place for exactly um rehabilitation, rejuvenation, redirection. And so I went to a lot of lectures about uh, health and uh, brain health and memory, nutrition, that kind of stuff, just trying to get myself caring for myself again. And one of the things that was driven home, uh, no matter what lecture I went to, whether it was on, you know, uh, uh, stomach health or brain health, it was always the same. Stress is a killer. Now, it's impossible to be alive and not encounter stress. Uh, life is stressful. But we live in particularly stressful times for us. And we can, you know, talk about that till we're blue in the face. But one of the things that, uh, that I know, I think is that I and I've said this before am not going to let Donald Trump kill me <laughs> through stress stress kills the more stress you feel the more the more chemicals are being released in your body these are chemicals meant to save your life in times of you know great danger like if a lion is about to pounce on you and all of those kinds of chemicals let loose in your body while they can save you in the short term they can also do a hell of a job on you in the long term which is why again you need to learn I keep saying you I'm talking about I'm talking to myself how to handle stress how to relieve it how to ameliorate it, how to avoid situations which you know to be stressful. So anyway, I actually, as I did last time I left you for a while, I um, I thought mightily about whether or not to continue doing this uh, show um, because it requires me to stay on top of the news, and the news is uh, stressful. And I think the question will continue to plague me, but where I came down this time was that even if I were to not do the show, I am a person who uh, keeps up. So while I might not read quite as much, I would still be, ingesting the kind of stressful information that we all tend to do and so stopping the show would really not help in that regard it would merely take from me um, five hours a week in which I actually can maybe uh, vent a little bit of of the stress and or do something that might be or might I might feel is helpful in combating the forces that have taken control of our government. Anyway, I decided to hang in there for a while, but um I, I want you to know that I have come to some and I really hope I stick to it. I don't want to be jerked around any more by what is called the news cycle. It's impossible to be again a thoughtful person if one is simply like a pinball being you know, knocked here and then knocked over there and then knocked up here and just reacting, 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 reacting. I don't want to anymore. So I am not going to come in here day after day and talk about what happened the day before necessarily, not necessarily. Because it gets us nowhere, and in fact, it gets us in Trump's thrall it allows him to control what it is we're thinking about with his tweets, with his absurd remarks, with his despicable near treason-ish co- conduct, all of that. I, I really am trying to exorcise this man as much as I can from my life while at the same time working diligently to get him out of the White House. (laughs) And the same goes with any of his enablers, that would be anybody with a Republican uh, on a Republican ticket. So I am going to try to be less like MSNBC, CNN, Fox, all the others, the talk shows, immediately responding to his latest spasm, his latest brain fart, his whatever. I'm sick of it. It's not a good use of my time. It's not a good use of your time. And so, again, I will very much limit how much I will watch cable news. They are, again, not good for our mental health and our physical health, since it's all one of a piece. And I don't think they um, educate us, these shows, very much. I think they do what I'm going to attempt not to do, is they respond in real time to every utterance and emanation from that grotesque human being who somehow became the President of the United States. I don't want to do that, and I'm not going to. That doesn't mean I'm not going to be talking about him um, or the consequences of his actions. I'm just not going to do it like cable news does it. It's allowing him to conduct the symphony. It's allowing him to create the narrative. It's allowing him way too much control over our own ability to figure out What's important and where our attention should be at any given moment. So, I don't know what that means in terms of the show because I still will be poring over newspapers looking for stuff, but I have to tell you, I just am trying mightily for my own health um, to not react, to not jump when he wants me to jump to not get freaked out when he wants me to get freaked out um i want dominion as much as possible over my own self again i will feel um better as a as a result uh So, you know, in my absence, all kinds of stuff happened, the Helsinki stuff and all that, you know. And it will continue to happen today, this morning, his tweet, right, about, uh, you know, threatening nuclear holocaust, essentially, on on Iran. Um, This will be difficult to resist, withstand, but I aim to try. That's all I can say. Um, I do, I I noticed I use the word resist and I also want to uh, say something else that popped into my head the other day. The so-called resistance that we all said we were a part of uh, we will resist him. Um, I, I, I don't even. I decide I don't like the idea of uh, the resistance because to resist is. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I think of that as a defensive posture. I'm. I'm like this when I'm resisting, I'm pushing back. I think we don't need to be in a defensive crouch. I, I don't I don't like being in one and I don't want to be in one. I think we need to go on offense. And so I just don't think the that that heading of resistance is right. I understand it, and I find myself using it all the time. I will resist this, I will resist that. But overall, it seems to me that people on our side are forever playing defense. It is the other side that is always playing offense. Right? Always playing offense. Even when any one of us would say, okay, well, the way things are going now, you're definitely on defense. No, they don't go on defense. <laughs> they, as we say in the media, double down. What doubling down is, is con- refusing to play defense and instead playing more offense. Right? Right? It's not our nature. They are more by nature aggressive. And I don't know if we're capable of doing uh of playing offense. Um rather than defense, but I think we've got to get better at it. We got to really work at it. We have to really try, because they are just, and I, I mean this in every way that you can take it, they are shamelessly offensive, right, yeah. So, one of the things, can I just tell you? I'm not going to jump right in today. I'm going to tell you some of the stuff that I did on my little sojourn away. Um, Because these are, like, again, it's learning how to take care of yourself. I read a ton. I read. I have a stack of books like that high that I read. So much more enjoyable than reading <laughs> newspapers. So much more. And uh, why don't men read novels? I mean, it, it seems like generally speaking, men don't read novels. And if they do read novels, it's like uh, Tom Clancy, or yeah, it, it's you know, it's um, or maybe a historical novel. Okay, but I love historical novels too. Um, but I mean novels that just delve into a life or the lives of people. Why? It's rare for me to find a man who wants to read those books. But that's what I read. I read that for escape, because a really well-written novel totally pulls you into another world. I mean, so much so that you care about people, that you cry, that you laugh, that your your heart pounds if there's danger, that you feel genuine relief if the danger is avoided. And that's getting out of oneself, right, which can be uh, very pleasant. And I spent a lot of time disappearing into other people's lives um other times in in history and um other cultures and in doing that I I found some uh the word that's in my head is surcease that's a word I learned from you know having to read Shakespeare it's not a word I've ever used before but That's the word that popped into my head, and I think it means an amelioration. Uh, There's some line from some monologue, surcease of sorrow? Whatever. God, see on my head, my head, my head. Anyway, I want to tell you just a little bit, and forgive me if this isn't your cup of tea, uh, of uh, three of the books I, I read, all of which I loved some of which I had a harder time getting into or loving, but all of which I found it impossible to put down. And again, guys, these are books that take you into the lives of other human beings, into their relationships, into what makes them tick. It's something that women really love, and you guys don't, and I think you should. (laughs) I don't get it. It is, I think, a very gender-specific difference, which is not to say that guys don't read novels. I mean, some guys do, but they're in the minority. So one of the books, I think the first book I read was called Golden Hill, and it was a historical novel in that it was set in 1740s of new york um and because it was set in 1740 new york prior to the revolution it was fascinating historically and what novelists do if they're really good novelists is they they make sure they're not making historical errors so that uh you know, the costuming is right. The language is right. Uh, the the picture they paint of the city is correct. I mean, at that point, New York was a city of about 6,000 people, 7,000 people. And um, it was under, of course, as the entire country was, under British control. And so it was, I mean... That alone was fascinating stuff. Um, but it was a, a wonderful read, a fun story, fascinating. Another takeaway from it is guess what was in New York City in 1740? Uh, slaves. And they figure in the book, slaves. Uh, again, Americans forget uh, that uh, slavery in uh, this country was all over the country Um, at earlier in the history. It was everywhere. So slaves were being bought and sold in New York City. You forget. And one of the things I sort of would long for is to be reminded of what it's like to live as most human beings who have ever lived have lived, which is without the constant cacophony of... telephones and computers and televisions and just constant constant input that if you needed to communicate with somebody and that person was in London <laughs> well yeah yes you wrote a letter and you sent it but Between the time you sent that letter and got a response, uh, you know, six months might pass. Four months might pass. And so when you're living with that kind of time, relationships are a bit different. How you think is a bit different. The stresses that you feel are different. But not knowing that it could be any different, there is an acceptance of that's reality. I mean, we don't even have to go back that far. I can go back to when I went off to college. I mean, my parents did not expect to uh, hear from me except maybe once a week we got into the habit of on Sunday I would call them. And we wouldn't talk for long because long distance was expensive. And then you'd hang up. Back when I was in college, my brother was in Europe much of the time, and we would write letters to each other, which took a long, long time to get to him and a long time back for me to get. So you don't have to go back to 1740 to remember a different way of being alive. And guess what? It worked. I think in some ways it worked a lot better. Another book I read uh, was Pachinko, P-A-C-H-I-N-K-O, set in Japan from about 1910 to near present day. And it was a family saga kind of a thing, but also fascinating in that. I learned quite a bit about Japanese society but also about Korean society because the book follows a Korean family living in Japan which is a uh, subservient uh, population there. Uh, The Japanese looked down on Koreans, Koreans didn't get jobs, Koreans wouldn't um, lived in, you know, not very pleasant uh, communities and Japan had uh, taken over Korea, so they were the Koreans were colonized by Japan. And boy, you find out, uh, you know, in terms of the histories of w- when we think, ah, South Korea, Japan, you know, be, I learned a lot from that one as well. also cultures in which honor uh, figures prominently and family honor figures prominently, which is uh, something that in our culture, frankly, has very little standing. And another novel with the... um, fortunate title of old filth um, which also was fascinating and uh, I learned about what were called Raj orphans when Britain was a colonial power and uh, British uh, Brits were sent all over their empire to uh, control the populations, India, Malaysia, Africa, they were everywhere, right? The Great British Empire. And often the children of these Brits, when they reached the age of about four or five, were shipped back to Great Britain to be educated and they became known as raj R A J as in India raj orphans and boy talk about family separation and these are families and the brits are, are are just famous for this right i mean the upper the upper crust brits always sending their children off to these god forsaken sadistic uh, boarding schools Um, and rarely seeing their own children Uh, this is a thing that runs through uh british history and it, it does a job on the children who then grow up to be british adults who then go on to do the same kind of things to their children really something anyway i found that interesting too One of uh, the things I did one evening was uh, watch a documentary um, and I want to share some information I got with that because this was about a man who fought fascism. And we talk often on this program about fighting what we see as incipient fascism and nationalism. And so to be reminded of the life of someone who lived it was confronted with, not incipient, but the real deal. was exceedingly powerful stuff, and I couldn't get it out of my head, still have not. One of the things that made it more powerful was the uh, documentary was about a man who uh, now deceased, uh, but lived up until relatively recently, maybe eight years ago, um, and died at the age of 90. But his wife, his widow, who was much younger than he, introduced the documentary and then Took questions after. So there was a sense of, of, you know, intimacy in some respects with this, the subject of this documentary. His name was Jan Wiener, or Jan Wiener. He was uh, a boy in Germany when his father and mother ran from the Nazis and ran to unfortunately Prague Czechoslovakia though so he was 18 17 I believe 17 years old and living um in Prague with his mother, who was divorced from his father. His father had remarried, and uh, they were Jews, and had remarried um, a non Jew. And the Nazis start closing in again on Prague. And his father and his stepmother and he end up in some inn somewhere. And his father, over dinner, says to his son, 17 years old, They are coming, the Nazis. I cannot run anymore. But you are young. You must run. You must survive. I am going to kill myself tonight. Imagine having that conversation. I am going to kill myself tonight. I have poison. And this boy watches. The documentary has him return to all of these places. So you see the old man that is the boy, that was the boy, sitting in the room where his father lay on a bed next to his wife. And they took the poison. The wife died very quickly. The son watched as his father died. And the old man, now reliving it, says, I never forgave myself for what I was thinking, watching him die. I was so enraged. How dare he? How dare he abandon me? I was 17 years old. I'm looking at him. He's checking out. He wanted to die at his own hand rather than at the hands of the Nazis. But I now am alone. And what he wouldn't forgive himself for was thinking, die already. He felt he had to stay until his father was dead. And he's thinking every second I'm sitting here, the Nazis are getting closer. Die then. We cannot imagine what people living then, what choices they had to make or felt they had to make, what positions they put themselves in, their children in, whether it was courage, whether it was brilliance. Later in the documentary, a friend of his says to him, I think your father was courageous he knew that the two of you that he would hold you back he thought you had a better shot by yourself anyway the rest of the story is mind blowing it's just mind blowing obviously he survived spent a lot of time in prisons but not concentration camps He was imprisoned by the Italians. He escaped finally an Italian POW camp. Made his way somehow to the UK and volunteered for the Royal Air Force. He was now all of what, 20, 21, 20? And the RAF took him in and trained him, and he was able, which is what he had wanted to do, to fight. After the war, he was, and others from Czechoslovakia who had managed to get out, and also went to fight with the Brits, Um, were greeted as heroes when they returned to Czechoslovakia. He returned and found his family home occupied by what used to be his neighbor. And he said to the neighbor, I am back, I want my home back. And the neighbor said, it's mine now mine you guys abandoned it I took it he saw that all the family furniture was in there he said that's all mine not yours and the former neighbor who was now a low-level functionary in the local communist government now said to him it's mine and there's nothing you can do which turned out to be true So where he was greeted as a hero, he was homeless. And he was later imprisoned for years and tortured by his countrymen, who he'd helped save from the Nazis. Tortured because they said to him, you fought with the British, and since now they were commies, they decided that he was a British spy, which he was not. This life, this unbelievably tortured existence in which he lost so much. His mother killed at Theresienstadt his father of course suicide all his family his greater family all destroyed by the Nazis he ended up in the United States he was a professor at NYU but talking to his widow you again you're reminded of the horror that can come when nations lose their way and turn to scapegoating and turn to propaganda and turn to autocracy. He was from a very sophisticated family in one of the more sophisticated parts of the world. That didn't change a thing. They all essentially became animals, prey and predator, one or the other. Sometimes both roles get played. So I guess um, that documentary reminded me that the veneer of our daily lives is just that. Human beings are human beings. There was no difference between the human beings in Germany in the 30s and the human beings in America in the 2000s. There is no difference. We are human beings with the same potential for good and unfortunately the same potential for evil. So I guess we have to have the courage to um, face things, to see things. But again, I will argue we have to take care of ourselves because you can't fight if you become a gibbering lunatic. right? And you can't fight if you are in a constant state of rage because you're fighting stupid then. I just, uh, I don't know, some of what I thought when I was gone. By the way, one day I was sitting uh, near a swimming pool at this place And um, I was reading my book. And I turned at one point, looked up from my book, and I turned. And uh, seated about, I'd say, about eight feet from me was uh, Ted Koppel. (laughs) Now, let me tell you, Ted, he was in a bathing suit. Ted for an old fart. I mean, he's 78 years old. He has a good bod. He's he's like so many people on TV uh that when you see them you're sort of shocked by how small they are. <laughs> I I also was behind him in line at the omelet station one one day and I I I was towering over him. I thought, "Geez, Ted, I didn't remember that. I interviewed him once at WTAE, and I, I guess I know he was shorter than me, but I, he's, I think he, well, he shrunk. I've shrunk, too. He looked good, though. He, he looked good. But I was thinking, aha, I'm not the only one who's up to here with all of this, Who needed, <laughs> who needed to get away. <coughs> I didn't bother him you don't get away to have people saying, oh, Mr. Koppel, <laughs> so I I didn't. Although it's funny because the day before I had read something about him, which is how I knew he was 78. And it was a little item about this Sasha Baron Cohen latest uh, shtick and how Koppel's one of the people he tried to, um, you know, hoodwink. And the article had said that he had been invited to Koppel's home, not as Sacha Baron Cohen, obviously, but as some alter ego that Baron was, uh, you know, using. And it had said that Koppel had thrown him <laughs> out. And it was odd, so I, I had read that. I think it was like that morning or something. And then the bang! Oh, there he was. It was a little odd, but he uh, he looked good. And I got to tell you, he he was not getting away like he should have because he had his nose in the New York Times and on his uh, on his uh, iPad. He was, you know, he has to, I guess, sucking it all in. Um. Hey, one of the stories that I saw that fascinated me was um, about Scarlett Johansson deciding, okay, I guess I won't make that movie, and the movie being about Dante Tex Gill. Do you know about Dante Tex Gill? You should, because Dante Tex, Dante Gill, Dante Tex Gill was a Pittsburgher, and now they're making a movie about him. Back in the day, we would have said insisted that Dante Texgill was a her because she was biologically female, but never identified as such. And shortly after I came to Pittsburgh, I remember reading about her, him. It's going to take me a while to get used to that. I've always thought of Dante as her. But in our more informed time... We know that Dante, who presented as a man, would want to be called him and he, so I will do that. But Dante Tex Gill ran, I think, most of the brothels in Pittsburgh, always dressed very Natalie in, um, in suits and ties, was a big guy. But, uh, so the fact that they're making, uh, you know, obviously, if they wanted Scarlett Johansson to play him, uh, and the reason, of course, she's not, is because the transsexual community uh, and their supporters got hot and bothered and said a transsexual should play Tex. I mean, assuming a transsexual actor (laughs) should play Tex. Whatever. Whatever. I I will be fascinated in seeing it because uh, one of my dearest friends lives in one of Texas' former brothels. And so I have spent a lot of good times in Dante Tex Gill's uh, place of business um, on Ellsworth Avenue. So um, that struck me and I wanted to... I wanted to say something to you about it. Also, this is bizarre. I went to one of those lectures I went to, and this was an hour lecture on gratitude. And it was wonderful. This guy was really good, very entertaining. But he talked again about, okay, look, uh, we can see things as a burden Or we can see things as an opportunity. You know, it was all about, I think, positive thinking about not getting yourself pulled into the negative all the time, which I do. I'm very good at. And instead reminding yourself of the, all the things you have to be grateful for. And, uh, this guy, while he's doing this lecture, starts talking about Mr. Rogers. And he talks about the documentary. And he asked this group of about, I'd say about 40 people, have any of you seen the Mr. Rogers documentary? And I was stunned at how many hands went up. And one guy, relatively young guy, saying, looked to be in his 30s, said, I've seen it twice. I thought, wow, well this is good, this is good. But he was holding Fred up as somebody who understood just innately that you look for the good. You look for that which you are grateful for. And I mean, it can be as simple as I'm, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for this, uh, for this right now because I'm thirsty. But just be aware, right? Oh, my God. You know, I went to Caliban Books all the time. I talked to that Schulman. Shul- is that his name? Yeah, I didn't know who he was, but I knew he was the owner. I love that bookstore. You know what I'm talking about, right? This unbelievable theft of $8 million worth of rare books and maps. And the unbelievable thing is I mean, again, if you know Pittsburgh. <clears throat> So the guy who hit, runs that rare book uh, archive would walk out the door of the Carnegie on Forbes Avenue with perhaps a $900,000 journal written by a young George Washington in his briefcase. And wave goodbye to everybody as he, bye bye, see you tomorrow, walk out, literally walk around the corner <coughs> to Craig Street a block away and walk in to Caliban Books and hand over this rare and he did that over and over and over again. Unbelievable. And the most bizarre part of it is he knew the value of this stuff. And he took chump change for it. He put everything, I mean, he would have had to know, being the archivist. That they do audits and that someday there'd be an audit and lots of stuff would be found missing. What was, I don't even understand what he was, was it, is this guy brain dead? How did he get to be a rare book archivist? And then the guy from Caliban Books, this dealer in, in, in uh, antique texts and stuff like that. He didn't think that at some point, what, I don't understand. And when people become literally driven insane by greed. And as I said, the archivist wasn't particularly greedy. He got had by the Caliban bookstore guy. Who'd pay him like, all right, here, take $5,000. Then he'd turn around and sell whatever it was for, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands. Jeez, I can't wait for this trial. This trial's going to be fascinating. It's going to be fascinating. I love it. So I'll tell you, Pittsburgh! I mean, come on, Dante Tex Gill, Mr. Rogers, the great library archivist heist. I mean, the New York Times, it made the New York Times. It's big, it's big. They'll make a movie about it just like they make movies about Dante Tex-Gill and uh, Mr. Rogers. So we have a call. Hello, caller.
0: Hello. Hi. Hey, so years ago, 20 years ago, I uh, used to work in the Natural History Museum. Yes. And when you started for any of the Carnegie places back then, I think there was more of an association between the library system of Pittsburgh and the museums plural uh, so they would make all the new employees go on this tour and one of the places we went was into that place where that guy worked I forget his name
1: uh Fiore we met him yeah
0: yeah so we met him Fiori. and he started probably was probably 96 uh-huh. yeah, whatever his name is Gert <laughs> as far as I'm concerned yeah unbelievable uh, he started remarking on how all of these rare books we're still on the shelves and still in circulation. And, uh, I don't remember him going through all of them, but I remember the thing he was holding in his hands as he was telling us was a, I believe it was a copy of Peter Pan that was, uh, inlaid with mother of Pearl on the cover. And a couple of the pieces were missing, whatever. He was just remarking on how he couldn't believe that these things were in circulation. So it does seem what the, so it's, not surprising when i saw the picture on the article because i didn't know him by name but then to see his face there like part of me wasn't totally surprised the other part that's probably not surprising is they probably do not audit this stuff however i don't know if you saw the article a couple well i don't know if you would have because you stopped the post-gazette but right. they uh and so did i <laughs> uh but they the on the other side of the wall the museum library is totally separate and they have started selling all of their rare books legally. <laughs> oh, so for money. Oh. I'm wondering if I'm wondering if what happened was if the public library suddenly remembered that they have all of these rare books and that that is when they suddenly went looking for them to sell because the museum is having all of these um what do they call it? The people that come in and put the value. Audits, the book? yeah, uh,
1: uh, whatever. Well, I mean, yeah, uh, yeah appraiser. Oh, they're appraisers. having all of their. They're, they're, yeah, their so, whole thing's like, for
0: years and years and years, in the Natural History Museum, all of these very valuable books that there on the shelves. Yeah. You could go to them. Uh, you, the one that they just sold, you could not go to that. The super duper valuable ones they had locked up. But there are other things that are, you know, in the high value, but not six million dollars they're suddenly having all of those appraised right now. <laughs> my bet is that the public library is about to go, was was going to go through a massive sell-off of all of their stuff and went and found that it was all missing. Okay. <laughs> or <clears throat> cut up.
1: Well, that's why so that's, it, I mean, it, that's it's just going to it's going to be a fascinating trial, I,
0: I think. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Hey, thank this, this is stuff that libraries watch for anyways.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: There's, there's, these people... Because we had known of people who had visited the collection that had a reputation for doing the slice and run thing. And luckily, the, the ones that we were aware of that they had looked at were all intact. But uh anyways.
1: Pretty amazing. Fascinating. I, yeah, it fascinating is. Fascinating
0: story. But it's also a sad story. Very. That the museum is so desperate that it's selling off of all of its books.
1: Indeed. <laughs> Indeed. So, anyways. Thank you.
0: That's the end. So, all right.
1: Thank you for the call. <laughs> I appreciate right. it.
0: Thank you. Back. <laughs>
1: Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Um, Chuck writes, Unbelievable as it may seem, I grew up on the same street where Dante Tex Gill lived for many years. You would think she he would have lived in some sort of mansion, but she lived in a humble contemporary house in Brentwood, just four houses up the street from my parents. She was a perfect neighbor, no loud parties, no trouble. You hardly knew she was there. I saw her a few times. She dressed as a man and looked as normal as you and me. Yeah, but yeah, she considered herself a man. Beth writes, I'm hearing some credible rumors that Scarlett Johansson might be coming back to the project. Uh, Beth is in the film industry, and I hope so. I think it is so stupid that only a transgendered person could play this role. It's called acting, not some lifetime fake documentary. Thank you, Beth. I appreciate that. I do. Because this stuff is getting insane. This stuff is getting insane. It's called acting. Thank you. This uh, says glad you're back. If you want to talk, talk about something other than Trump, did you tell us yet what happened when your parking court appearance? Oh, Yeah! Ta-da! Right, that was the last time. I, I <laughs> slam dunk, just like I knew. What a scene that is, though. Wow. I was called up. You go right up to the judge, and I said, I, I thought, why? And as I was called up, I said, why didn't you think about what you were going to say? And blah, blah, blah. I said, well, look, um, look. I think it all comes down, and I did. I had the picture of the no parking sign, you know, one of those cardboard ones. No parking from this state to this state, this time to that time. I said, look, I read this as no parking from, you know. So I, I gave him my case, and he looked at it and said, that's how I read it too. And he said, yeah, fine, not guilty, bang. That's how long it took. I waited seven months, and I really, but, well, and then I said, okay, so did I get my money back? He said, we'll send it to you. I finally got the check. I did get the check, and I said, what about the price of the tow? You towed my car. It was $145. He said, that I can't do for you, but I will write you this thing and then you can take that to the tow pound so I still had to run over to the tow pound I got that money I got so I am whole now, now. but uh, again you have to be able to take a day off work to go do that and a lot of people can't and a lot of people can't pay those fines and they started uh the first cases he heard were cases of people who are were sitting in the next building over, which happens to be the jail, and they the judge was talking to them over a you know compu- like a FaceTime thing, and you had guys who were in jail who had to still go to traffic court, and the judge would say like so how long you what and the guy would say I'm serving three and a half three and a half years federal. And the judge would look at this and that, and I'm thinking, and they still got to be dealing with these, and some of them are in jail because they can't pay, traffic court fines. Although the guy's doing three and a half years in federal was uh, not. I, it was, it was something. It's an experience. But I, of course, I won. I told you, I told you. I was wrongly accused and found guilty and had my car removed from my possession all by some idiot, idiot. And do you think that idiot will be, you know, in any way, hey, idiot, you, uh, you know, no. They had my money and they maybe made some interest on it and, you know, not much, but whatever. (laughs) I <laughs> slam dunk ooh I think we're done uh, okay slam dunk Um, uh, 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 just a quick just to get the last email in here Lynn writes um, I wanted to weigh in about what you were saying about the guy who returned and then the communists had taken his home Why can't these Republicans see this whole Russia thing as the same way they thought about the domino theory during the Vietnam War? While Trump is playing around flirting with Putin, Putin will feel empowered to keep taking over other countries in the neighborhood one by one. First it was Crimea, then it's Ukraine, next will be the Baltics. So much is about messaging, but that's an email for another day. Lock him up. Okay, I wish I could. I would happily, happily... Okay, nice to be back. You can now begin to watch me uh, sort of uh, like the picture of Dorian Gray go from this like placid person I am today. See how long it takes before, you know, the, he- the lines on my face become, you know, really intense and, and I start sighing a lot again. I'm hoping to go at least a few months. Anyway, great to be back.